Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. Before we kick off the show, I just wanted to take a moment to remind you that the ICC Men's Cricket T20 World Cup Final is taking place in Barbados this summer. This, by default, gives all of my fellow cricket fanatics the perfect excuse to go and book a holiday to Barbados in June and experience firsthand the euphoric atmosphere at the Kensington Oval, the cricket mecca of the Caribbean. If the cricket alone isn't enough to tempt you, then let me be the one to remind you that a trip to Barbados can also include leisurely strolls along the breathtaking coastline, mouth-watering flavours of the world-class Bayesian cuisine, and, of course, plenty of rum. Head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today to book the trip of a lifetime to Barbados, the best place to be a cricket fan. Happy New Year to everyone and welcome to our first 2024 edition of Following On here on TalkSport 2 with me, Neil Manthorpe, alongside former England fastballer Steve Harmison. South Africa have named their squad for the Test Series in New Zealand next month, which clashes with their SA20, and seven players are in line for a debut, including a new captain. TalkSport's cricket editor John Norman will join us for his weekly slot on the show, Proteas batter David Beddingham joins us fresh from his test debut in South Africa's innings victory over India. And we'll also hear from the retiring Dean Elgar. Australia opener David Warner explains why he's also retiring from ODI cricket, sort of, as well as test cricket. And we'll round up the week's other big stories as Kieran Pollard joins England's coaching setup for the T20 World Cup. And two England greats are rewarded in the New Year's honours list. So plenty to come over the next hour. You're listening to Following On. Well, some people called it a rant. I prefer to think of it as a soliloquy and an elegant one as well. Those of you who missed it, uh, Harmy uh, was uh, speaking at length uh, and pleading for England not to arrive in India three days before the first test in Hyderabad. He wanted them to prepare properly. England captain Ben Stokes responded on Twitter, but more importantly, called Harmy and, I believe, had a long conversation. The, it was private and it should stay that way, Harmy. But the mere fact that the England captain took the time and trouble, and it was a considerable amount of time, to call you to discuss is, again, the umpteenth illustration of how much he cares for Test cricket and wanted you to know and to share with our listeners and viewers how much he cares about Test cricket. Am I reading that right? Yes, but um, he's he cares about Test cricket. He cares about the England cricket team. And once I'd seen what had been put out, I was half expecting it because it's his job, it's his duty to to protect his team. Me saying I was out of order when I said they deserve to get beat five nil. I've rolled that back, and I and I and I, and I was I shouldn't have said that because I don't want any England team. 
I care. That's why I had the rant. I don't want any England team to lose. I don't want any England team, especially led by Ben Stokes, to lose any test matches because of the level of respect I've got for him. Uh, it was a conversation between two friends who have come back a long, long way, who have, from my point of view, seen the development of a wonderful human being grow up from a 15-year-old coming into the Durham dressing room to being one of the most inspirational characters and cricketers of not just English cricket, but of world cricket and the way he tries to preserve test match cricket. I understand all the points he was making. You know, I, I, I told him what I what I said and why I said things. But like, like you mentioned, these conversations, they remain private. My level of respect for him, to be honest, couldn't get any higher. You know, this guy's not big enough to sort of the ceiling level for the way I think about England's captain. I understand why they, they're spending time in, in Abu Dhabi, uh, because of the training facilities are so much better than what you potentially get in India. I still believe three days is not, it's not, not enough because of who's going. It's more, it's more about the personnel. I, I think if England's bowling attack was going to be Jack Leach, Moen Ali, like the last time England were there, Rowan Anderson, then I'd say fine. Yeah, you get away with three days because of the amount of preparation they're going to do and what they're going to do in, in Abu Dhabi. But I still, I still believe with, with the, the, the young spin bowlers, uh, and, and, it's, and one, of the, one of them could be a teenager making, uh, playing his first game in India in that first test match in Hyderabad. I didn't get a tall order and a tall ask. And then, obviously, it's the scene bowlers as well. So after the conversation, this is somebody protecting test match cricket. And as we'll hear, you know, we'll turn to talk to John Norman a, a little bit later on about what's happening in the world of Test Match Cricket. I think it's so good for English cricket that you've got a man at the top who loves Test Match Cricket as much as Ben Stokes does. Because if he didn't, I fear where the where not the England cricket team would be, I fear where world Test Cricket could be. So there were a few things I shouldn't have said. There's a few things I will stand by and still believe in. And I still believe that preparation time in India is, is not quite enough. But while England have got an, a leader like Ben, you could go to India for six weeks before and still lose a test series. You can go to Abu Dhabi for six weeks before and still lose a test series. But at the end of the day, you know, it's how you how you perform in them five test matches. But while you've got a while you've got an inspirational leader like Ben then I think the England cricket team will give everything they possibly can to win in India, which is an unbelievably tough place to go. So it was an interesting week, Manners. It was a very, very interesting week because some people agreed, some people disagreed. But the, the beauty for me is it was, it was a conversation between two people who have known each other for a long, long time on one common theme that we both care about, the England cricket team. And while, while we've got him, England's Test Match cricket's in a great place. You may not always agree with your captain or your coach uh, in any sport. And I'm sure that in your own brief football managerial career, you, you would have insisted on understanding the game plan. You may not have agreed with it, but as long as you understand what a team is trying to do, then it does make a lot of difference. You might think it's right or wrong. So my question is, I love asking you for a one-word answer because I, I enjoy witnessing your inability to give me one. My question is, do you understand? Do you understand? Yes or no? What England are trying to achieve with this build-up in Abu Dhabi and arriving three days before the game? One hundred percent, yes. One hundred percent, yes. And I probably did understand when I was having that rant because the facilities are so much better. 
lot of talk, man, it's about golf. And I don't think there's anything wrong with golf. When it comes to preparing for a test match, is there a better way? You, you tell me how you train for six and a half hours on your feet. You know, that for me is, as long as you're not doing it stupidly in the middle of the afternoon when it's red hot, you know, preparing for a test series. A lot of people have been making, you know, funny quips at the, at the golf side of it. But I, I, I don't have a problem with them playing golf. And I fully understand why they're in Abu Dhabi because the practice facilities are so much better than what you'd get in India, two pitches with net round them on the outfield. I get why they're doing it. But unfortunately, I'm still one of the old-fashioned ones who thinks boots on the ground and time on the ground for a period of time leading into the first test match is sometimes more valuable. So I can understand it, yes. Okay, good. Um, I can understand it as well. Um, and um, as I, people thought I was being sarcastic and facetious last week when I said that, uh, you know, the, the the guarantee of a quality club sandwich in a, in a very comfortable hotel cannot be... Um, it's not the be all and end all, but it's it, you know it cannot be dismissed. We're going to stay on the subject of Test cricket here. We're way over time already. Dean Elgar, 185 in his penultimate Test match to set up an innings victory against India, and he, by the way, is set to become Somerset's new captain uh, for on a two-year contract. I understand. South Africa nine series now. India have failed to win in South Africa. Michael Vaughan your old captain, said that India are one of the most underachieving sports teams in the world. Was that clickbait? Was he trying to get people to listen to his podcast? Or um, what, what do you reckon? Why, why can't India win in South Africa? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. He can have a voice on that because he his side won in South Africa. We won in South Africa in 2005. So he captained a team to win. I think it was the first series that South Africa lost after apartheid when... We went over there in 2005. So Michael Vaughan knows what it takes to win in, in South Africa. I'm not sure Ben Stokes is going to ring Michael Vaughan up. But I, with my rant last week, I'm not sure Ben Stokes is overly keen on what Michael Vaughan has said this week because the most underachieving side in world sport, the next team to go to India is England in a five-test match series. And after what I said last week, I'm not sure the England cricket team will, will really want Michael Vaughan Stoking it up that little bit more and getting India going, ready for when you know McCullum and Stokes' team gets there. But from a results point of view, you know England had a, a poor time in 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 the World Cup, and you know they did all right in the West Indies. But India were expected to win the World Cup, they didn't. A tough place to go to Africa. Still time yet to to salvage something in the series. But that's an unbelievable side, that India side. So clickbait, yes. Michael Vaughan likes to, to sort of to make his statement and I'm sure the Indians will enjoy in that as in when England arrive in, in a few weeks' time. Let's finish then on Pakistan in Australia. Nobody gave them a chance and they are 2-0 down. But it's a series that's uh, had some moments, hasn't it? Pat Cummins with a tenfer at uh, the MCG. My goodness, he just seems to be growing and growing in stature and performance for Australia. I, again, I'm tempted to say, well, who on earth could go to Australia and win there against that team? But India have on their last two visits. And yet they can't win in South Africa. Crazy, isn't it? It's crazy. And the way they did it as well, the way, the way India went about their job in, in, in Australia, where you know, Richard Pant just came out and smashed it. Virat Kohli went home. And it, India won when Virat Kohli went home. Their best player went home. So... It's 
bizarre that they couldn't win. They can't win Australia in in South Africa, and and they've been able to to sort of win in in Australia. It's getting harder to go to Australia and win, and that's why when England go there, you know, in two winters time, we're going to got to have you know the right combinations to. And what will Test cricket look like in two years' time when England go there? So it's going to be. It is tough for Pakistan. They are. A, they've got some very, very good individual players. They just look as though they don't play as a team. And one of their premier fast bowlers is playing in the BBL. So I don't think that helps. I'm not sure Harris Ralph playing for Pakistan would have made a huge difference to the results. But having a quick bowler like that at your disposal will be will be very, very handy. So. I think Shah Massoud's done a very good job as as captain, even though the two 0 down. I think you know, looking at and watching, I think he's done a a reasonable jolly job. He got a couple of fifties in that last game. So once again, on top of Australia, it's they're just a different animal, and especially someone like Pat Cummins, who he's just carrying on. And he twenty twenty four looks as though it's going to be a, as good a year for Pat Cummins as as what twenty twenty three was, because you know five for in each of the uh, each innings, he was brilliant. It was the areas he was bowling. With a pierce on it and the velocity behind it, he would have, he would have knocked over a lot of top water top water top water opposition, um, and not just a Pakistan one who looked vulnerable to the bouncing ball. Well, the difference between Australia and 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 South Africa, in my opinion, and it's not often had enough made of it, is the variation in bounce. You just said the bouncing ball in South Africa, especially in the first twenty thirty overs. The bounce is variable and uh, it's a little bit up and down and there's more seed movement. I mean, pitches might be quick and bouncy in Australia as a generalisation, but um, they're pretty flat and reliable. And it's the unpredictability of South African pitches with a hard ball that I think makes uh, the biggest difference. Right, you're listening to Following On with me, Neil Manthorp, alongside former England fast bowler Steve Harmison. As promised, I'm delighted to say that we are joined live by David Beddingham, um, who, incidentally, those of you who missed the programme, it was uh, three or four months ago, we asked him about the possibility of playing Test cricket for South Africa. And he didn't say yes, but he kind of did. Didn't you, David? You, you'd had the call. You can tell us now. You'd had the call then from Shukri Conrad, South Africa's Test coach, um, who discussed the possibilities with you and suggested you, you might like to take your name out of the SA20 auction. Is that right? Yeah, well, I, I, I think he... Never promised me a test cap, but he did say that, obviously, if I did take my name out of the draft, I think there'd be a high chance of playing. He did promise that I'd go on the tour itself, but I I just thought the possibility of playing test cricket for my country was obviously a bit bigger than um, an auction or a draft um, because those those things come across often, and I see, I see, I see them as a bonus where I see playing test cricket as the highest honour, I think. So, yeah. David, take us back to that moment. You've been told you're playing for South Africa. Um, take us to your, your emotions where you were the night before. Obviously, a, a, a huge um, occasion for family bedding them. And then on that first morning, walking out with that cap on. Well, I think when I got told I was uh, in the squad, it was obviously a massive honour and stuff. Um, but I think there's been loads of people in squads that have unfortunately not been on the field playing. So I think... When I got told I was playing, then the nerves really started, but also a lot of excitement and a very proud moment for myself and my family, I think. Walking out, I'm so glad we won won the toss and bowled because um, I think that helped with the nerves a bit. 
But after the first five overs, um, I I don't know how how you felt, Tommy, but I reckon my legs felt like a thousand kgs each, and all I was thinking about while running from gully to gully was just not tripping and st- and stuff like that. But once once it gets in the flow and you just like start start playing, I think the appreciation and and stuff like that just becomes really really cool. Um, it wasn't a packed house at Centurion, uh, but it was a really good at- atmosphere and really special. You were asked by the Indian journalists afterwards um, what it was like facing Jasprit Bumrah, and your answer was that you were so nervous you couldn't process who it was you were facing. You were just watching the ball. And, I I mean, you made 56 of the most glorious, elegant runs. Many um, people in South Africa, I I guess, were were watching you, you know, for the first time, and English viewers will have seen you play for years like that for Durham. But how? my question is, how on earth did you disguise the way you were feeling? Because you looked as calm as a veteran it might have looked like that but it wasn't like that at all i think i think batting with dean helped me a lot i think while we were out there he's quite a serious guy and i feel i'm not a serious guy so but what what definitely helped was at at the end of every serious conversation he made like a a small joke here, here and there that made me really comfortable um so i think batting with him helped a lot but also i think having like my parents there and my fiance they're just like watching I, I don't think they really cared about if i scored naught or 100 i just think they're really proud of me so i think that was the biggest thing just just trying trying to make them proud and knowing that if i score naught they're still proud of me if i score 100 they're still exactly the same so i think that definitely helped big time as well you mentioned a bit earlier about the the debut and i remember going back to my debut my first four overs about four maidens and it was literally because of that i couldn't couldn't get to them they were that high or that wide <laughs> I was so I just didn't want to let go of the ball. I just tried to see myself ball into Alex Stewart. And yeah, I fortunately I had Flintoff and Key, two of my best friends there. And Flintoff dropped a catch in the second over, I think it was, and then Keezy dropped one in the fourth or fifth over. Oh, okay. It was like ganging up on each other. So it was like playing in the park. You know, I tried to relax <laughs> while Carnage of Test Debut was going. But when you talk about you know, talking about having friends on there and you mentioned about Dean, you know, a twenty nine year old making a test debut. Played a lot of cricket for Durham. You mentioned everybody's proud. I'm sure Durham are very, very proud of you for what you've achieved. But how much has Durham, that journey with Durham, given you the best experience to go and play in the, what is the ultimate arena, which is Test cricket? Well, I think I, I think playing for Durham and meeting new new people and like experiencing a new culture, I think that grows me as a person. I think if I'm growing as a person and working hard on my cricket, I think they go hand in hand. So I think if I'm growing as a person, I'm pretty sure I grow as a cricketer. Um, but just spending time with guys like a lot of time with Carsey, who's a free spirit, and then Leezy, who's more of a stubborn York, Yorkshireman. I think learning from from those type, type of guys def, definitely help. I always try to be my, my person or my same person, but like learning how different people go about different ways of cricket, I think help helps a lot. And I think having those type of guys in the dressing room definitely helps. I do need to thank uh, Northy a lot because I think when I signed there, 2020 was a COVID year. We didn't play much cricket. And then obviously Brexit happened. And then I, uh, in 2021, I became overseas. And they could have easily just said, okay, look, uh, betters, unfortunately, these are the cards that have been dealt and we're going to go a different route. Um, but I was lucky enough to stay on with them. And in 2021, had a solid season. And then like 
almost the rest is history. So I do owe Northy a lot for sticking with the young South African that wasn't proven. Um, and thank goodness it worked out. Well, you certainly proved yourself now. Um, in years gone by, Bedders, a county like Durham, you know, would have been thinking, we've got a guy who plays all summer, averages 50 in first-class cricket, is one of our most consistent performers. Um, so, we, you know, we'll build the team around him. And in years gone by, they might now have been thinking, whoa, this is a curveball we weren't expecting. This complicates things. But given Marcus North's reputation and the way that he was with Baz de Lierda, uh, releasing him for the Netherlands, and looking at South Africa's very threadbare test schedule, it is actually really, really feasible to see how you can make this relationship work for years to come. Yeah, I think I, I think uh, when I spoke to Northy about maybe playing in New Zealand um, and then looking forward to like the South Af- African schedule, I think I think my my main thing for Durham is obviously to try play as much as I can, but I think the main one would be trying to win. Div one, so I think the international schedule almost plays itself out. That if I had to play for South Africa, I think I would only miss the one days, and I think that's especially this year. I'm not sure about 2025 and 2026, but definitely this year. I think there's a West Indies tour in August, and usually in August that's when the hundred is played, and that's when the one days are played. So we spoke about it in length, and he just said, "Well, if you're available to, for 12 to 14 games, it's it's fine." Um, so I think. Uh, in 2025, it might be a different story and, st- and stuff like that. But for now, it's it's worked out nicely. And I love Durham, so I'd like like to stay, stay there long term, obviously. But things happen. I might I might be out the S- SA team ne- next test. I might be there for five years. I I just don't, don't know because it's so flexible. But one thing I do know is that I'll try, try my best, and I really do want to stay at Durham if it's feasible. Yeah, man, I'm sure Durham's supporters will be and members will be over the moon with, with what you're saying there. And you mentioned about staying in the team and going forward. You know, the next challenge is New Zealand. And you've gone from first test cap to being seasoned veteran in that group when it, when you get in, when you get <laughs> yeah. to New Zealand. But how much are you looking forward to that? Because it's going to be a different challenge. Because you, without joking aside, you are going to be one of the senior players. And, you know, you probably go from what you have at Durham, where people look up to you, you're going to find yourself in that situation in the in the test arena after just one test. Yeah, I think it will be different. Um, I do think, obviously, we'll be massive underdogs. But I think with the nature of what we, we've been dealt, I think that every single player going there has a massive opportunity and chance to try prove themselves. So a lot of the people are complaining about it, and I do get it. But I also think that a lot of people, especially the players, didn't have a choice. So I think that the players that have, have been picked, I think if six to seven guys can have a good tour, it just shows that the depth in South African cricket is there. And I think, it, it, I mean, they might not play in the West Indies, they might not play for the next couple of years, but if they have a good run in New Zealand, that means that they can play at that standard and it will give them confidence to score runs and take wickets in, let's say, when Timber maybe retires or or more experienced guys aren't playing. So I think I think there's two ways guys can look at it. But I think from a player's point of view, it's not ideal. But I think going forward, I think it's a good thing. Betters, let's bring it back to the here and now. I mean, I, I've known you. I've watched you as a, as a teenager before you had that uh, serious injury. Some people may not know you were involved in a, in a terrible car crash and you were out for a year. But, you know, the Newlands Test match is, uh, has been part of your childhood growing up. 
And I'm no doubt that as a teenager, you, you went down and watched a few test matches with a couple of cold beers. And yeah. now here you are 10, 12 years later and you're about to walk out and actually play the Newlands test match. Um, I know you've probably spent a bit of time pinching yourself, but this really is a dream come true, isn't it? I know you don't like cliches. And that's the thing. I think it hasn't really sunk in yet because I reckon five, six years ago, I would be on the old Oaks drinking loads of beers, not knowing <laughs> the guys per- personally, but literally just watching slash not watching and just ha- having a good time with friends. So that's why I think it's really special because I have a lot of friends and family there tomorrow. And uh, just being able to walk out there, even if I score no runs compared to, or or if I score lo- loads of runs, it's just a really special uh, moment. And I can't wait. I think the Centurion test, I was more nervous than excited but I think now I've probably got the excited slash nervous uh, ratio right so hopefully that will tra- translate into run- uh, into runs and enjoyment but literally I can't wait so I think it's a proud moment especially for my mom and dad because they've been through a lot and they've taken me to a lot of cricket games they've come on every single tour if if they could um, they've backed my decision albeit a risky one to move to Durham as a 25 year old so I think it'll be a very proud moment for them, and I can't wait. And speaking of proud moments, um, a career is ending this weekend, and that's Dean Elgar. You got a sample to play with him, uh, to bat with him. It's Centurion. Um, he's going to be a big loss, isn't he? Massive. I think. I think obviously we'll miss his runs, we'll miss his leadership and, and stuff like that. But I think just around and change him. I mean, I've only been here for ten days, but the mark he leaves when he speaks when he walks around, just just the confidence he gives to other players is massive. So I think obviously we'll miss his runs and his captaincy and his leadership and stuff like that. But I think his dressing room presence will be a massive miss. Um, and obviously he's played for a long time and he's been a great servant. Uh, so hopefully we can make it a special game for him and uh, hopefully win win the series. But as finally from me, um, you are you prepared to be the the poster boy for test cricket now. I'm, not very many players are <laughs> removing their names from player auctions um, in favour of, of playing test cricket. And um, without going too deeply into it, I mean, are you confident that, uh, that the greatest format will be okay and will survive? It has to reinvent itself. Uh, South Africa is going to play fewer test matches than ever before since it's returned to test cricket. But I, are you from, from, I mean, you need to concentrate on the ball, I know rather than the background. Um, but are you confident that uh, that it will find a way to reinvent itself and stay alive and healthy? I, I think so, because when in, in this environment, no one's speaking about uh, the SA20 yet. All the players that are playing in this test series are speaking about one thing, and that's trying to win a series against India. So I think if we came into this environment and the guys are just speaking about the SA20 or the IPL auction, I think, there'd be um, an issue. But I think all 15 guys in the squad that I've been around, they're only speaking about this test uh, series against India. Um, So I still think it's very strong and healthy. I think that 15 of the guys in the squad all see test cricket as the highest form of cricket. There's obviously exceptions for guys that only play the T20 game, and that's fine. But I still think a large part of the cricket community all think and all want to play test cricket. I mean, when, when I speak to Stubbs, everyone almost pigeonholed him as a white ball player. But when I speak, speak to him, all he speak, speaks about is that test cricket is the pinnacle, can't wait to play, et cetera, et cetera. So I think if, guy, if even though he got that massive 
payment in the SA20, all he thinks about is still test cricket. So I generally think that it might be it might be shadowed because of SA20 and IPL and stuff like that. But I still think there's a massive hunger in cricketers to play test cricket, which is important, obviously. David Beddingham, congratulations. Well done. Well played at Centurion. Best of luck at Newlands. And here's to many, many more years of test cricket for you to come. Thank you. Thank you, sir. You're listening to Following On with me, Neil Manthorpe, alongside Durham Hall of Famer Steve Harmison. And next up, TalkSport cricket editor John Norman joins us for his new weekly slot, debating the biggest talking point of this week, South Africa's test squad for their tour of New Zealand in February. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. If your passion for travel is on par with your passion for cricket, then I have some excellent news. The ICC Men's Cricket T20 World Cup final is being hosted in Barbados this June, which makes it the perfect destination for your summer holidays this year. To make the most of your trip, you can also experience eight matches from the series in Barbados, including England against Scotland and England against Australia. In under a month's time, you could be spending your days exploring the vibrant streets of Bridgetown, drinking rum in the sunshine and experiencing exotic Bayesian delicacies in the culinary capital of the Caribbean. There truly is something for everyone. There's no need to wait a second longer. Head to Visit Barbados.org forward slash cricket today to book the trip of a lifetime to Barbados, truly the best place to be a cricket fan. You're listening to Following On here on TalkSport 2 with me, Neil Manthorpe, and former England fast bowler Steve Harmison. Uh, And if you haven't missed any of the show or you want to catch up, you can download the podcast from the Following On feed available as always via the free TalkSport app or wherever else you get your podcasts. Okay, the big talking point of the week then is uh, something that South African test cricket lovers have been aware of uh, for for three months, but uh, the rest of the world has suddenly woken up to the fact that South Africa have selected what is effectively a C team to play two test matches in the World Test Championship against New Zealand in the land of the long white cloud in February. Neil Brandt will uh, captain the makeshift team, which includes seven uncapped players, including himself, uh, who will become the first uh, man to captain South Africa on debut um, since, I think it was Alan Melville in 1938. 
Anyway, um, it's, a, it's a subject that uh, has certainly caught the attention of Steve Waugh amongst a number of very high-profile international players, Waugh suggesting that Test cricket will be dying, if that's the kind of attitude that uh, the game's administrators show to it. Um, all I will say from my point of view is that, you know, they're not club cricketers. They're, <laughs> they're talented cricketers, many of whom haven't yet reached their best and a few uh, who are past their best. But um, the ramifications, John Norman, of this uh, selection, we will only know in the months and years to come. But we can certainly speculate with a certain degree of sadness, can't we? Yeah, absolutely. And it's a story that you've been across for the best part of a year. I'm I'm not sure I heard anybody else uh, verbalising this situation earlier than you did. And you've you've been proved right, unfortunately. Uh, We spoke about it last week, didn't we, on the show about where Test cricket is, where it's going, where it's been. And yet here we are. I suppose the notion that we can never go back to where Test cricket was is fanciful. It never will be. And I suppose... If cricketers in the 60s, 70s, 80s, before that as well and after, had the choice that the modern-day cricketer has now, then Test cricket wouldn't have survived then either. You know, it was uh, very, very difficult to get on the gravy train, wasn't it? And it was quite interesting from my perspective to speak to Kumar Sangakara about seven years ago. And he was actually of the opinion that the increase in these T20 leagues has been such a such a boon to cricket, not just financially, but also from a a mental health perspective. Because back in the day, you either made it in test cricket or you didn't. And even as recently as Steve's uh, era, once your test cricket career came to an end, that was it. You know, of course, you'd have some county stuff. Of course, you could go back and play for your county. But choices were very, very narrow. And the drop-off in earnings, the drop-off in prestige, was very, very difficult for a lot of people. So I suppose we should celebrate the fact that cricketers now don't have to have that cliff edge to their careers. But similarly, the idea that we can go back, I think it's for the birds, but we can ask ourselves the question, how can we protect and promote test cricket? And I'm sure I'm not the only person that sat back and was thoroughly engrossed by, I would say, some of the very best test cricket that we can ever appreciate as Dean Elgar um, with the drama surrounding his imminent retirement, the drama surrounding South Africa protecting that proud heritage against India and coming up against the greatest Indian side in in their history, managed to upset the form guide, beat India handsomely in a compelling game of four-day cricket, um, which showcased the best that South Africa have in terms of obduracy and fast bowling and athleticism in the field and a little bit of ticker as well. A seesaw match. And I'm sure I'm not the only one that just felt that there should be some people in South Africa right now who made their name in Test cricket, who wouldn't be famous if it wasn't for Test cricket. And essentially, along with a lot of people in India, pretty much sold the game up the river and how anybody could watch what we saw at Centurion and think, you know, the answer to this game is to have less of this. Sorry, that doesn't wash for me. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and and that is, I think that's the challenge. That's the challenge for not only for players, but for administrators to make sure that we do protect Test cricket. There was obviously a, a headline off the last, back of the, the last show. And, we, you know, we've spoke about it at length about 
the, the headline it created with obviously Ben Stokes coming back at us. And Ben is so protective of Test match cricket. He really is. He wants Test match cricket to survive. One of the greatest captains that's ever captained in Steve Waugh has had his say, you know, this week talking about you know the three, the basically the big three trying to create a window. And I think that's probably the only way you can do it is there's a window for the IPL. There's possibly a window for a second IPL. I think there needs to be a window for all test match cricket. And I think it can be achieved. It can be quite simple because a lot of countries play in the Southern Hemisphere, play cricket over Christmas, you know, and test match cricket over Christmas. So the likes of South Africa and, and Australia and New Zealand, there's a window there of a, possibly a month where you could fit three test matches in around Christmas. You know, England play in the, in the obviously in the Northern Hemisphere. There's a, there's a window for the 100 now. There's got to be a window for test cricket. And if it's played at the same time, then both formats can prosper for me. You know, the white ball and the red ball. So if you had the whole of June and you know, into July to fit six test matches into a schedule for an England point of view, and then create a window you know, later on in the, in, in the calendar for, for maybe the West Indies side, side of it, then all of a sudden, if you start creating windows like you have done for the IPL to protest, protect test cricket, like John was saying there before, you know, people love Test cricket. People want to watch Test cricket, and I think it's it's important that the big names now. You know, Ben's very protective of Test cricket. You listen to Virat Kohli. I always believed India would be market leaders of protecting Test cricket, while Virat Kohli was captain of India because the way he spoke about red ball cricket and Test match cricket was brilliant from probably one of the greatest of of all time. So I think it's it's up to the it's up to the not just the administrators it's up to the players as well to try to try and protect it and if they can work hand in hand then brilliantly but like we said before sometimes the left hand doesn't always want to want to work with the right hand or even want to speak to it. John, just a couple of thoughts to you and there is lots of speculation not for the first time about um, Test cricket becoming a basically a an ongoing tri-series between the big three all playing each other in five test series and th- so there is that uh, to I mean could that be sustainable but also what about in countries like South Africa and Sri Lanka the small seven so a, a friend of mine said well um, absence makes the heart grow fonder less is more and if we only get South Africa that is only get 10 uh, get, get four test matches a year then I'm going to make sure I actually go through them. The crowd at Centurion was very good, sold out on day one, and, and Newlands is a sellout, and I guess it, it often is. Um, so if it has to reinvent itself, um, can, can it survive around the rest of the world on, the, on that premise that less is more and absence makes the heart grow fonder and people will, will turn up and, and support Test cricket if it's so rare? Well, I think that the topic is so vast and the solution is equally so. You are looking at, I would suggest, a 10 to 15 year plan to get the game back where it, where it needs to be. You know, forget India, forget England and forget Australia. Let's look at those other countries like South Africa. The notion that we can ever get back to the kind of Sir Alistair Cook uh, kind of test cricket is gone because to get back to that style of cricket, you need a domestic structure in place. You need uh, facilities in place and you need a financial incentive to become that kind of, of player. You need boards to be creating that kind of player. So that form of test cricket, 
has gone. So in its place, I suppose what we would like to see is a situation where the best are playing the best. Okay, we can't have a situation where Pakistan tour Australia and Harris Ralph is playing in the Big Bash rather than playing for Australia, for Pakistan. We can't have a situation where West Indies are travelling to Australia where they've had a, a terrible record for many, many years and they are fielding a, you know, a team that's got seven new caps. We can't have a situation where South Africa are travelling to New Zealand with all these new faces. That cannot happen. So it needs its own window. Whether that will ever happen, I don't know. But if it won't happen, and I don't think it will, then you need to have an investment and they need to be incentivised. Yes, you had a good team, a good crowd at Centurion. Yes, less can be more, but I can't really see how uh, how it can be to the betterment of a game to disappear for 11 months <laughs> and then come back. And, you know, that doesn't make sense to me. You're, you're trying to attract the youth of tomorrow or youth of today to the game tomorrow now, it's all well and good, some bloke who's been interested in cricket for 30 years saying, oh, well, I'm, I'm definitely going to try and make it. His kids won't, but won't because 11 months in the year of a seven-year-old is like 10 years in the life of an adult. So they need to be able to see it. If they don't see it, they're not going to go and try and play it. It comes back to financial incentive. You need to get the best players on the park, okay? And if that means paying them, and if that means, look, you're not going to be blocking it out. You're not going to be over my dead body. And there might be quite a few three or four day games, but it will be it will be exciting. It won't be for the purists. Just got to get the best players on the park. You get the best players on the park, and it is, once again, test cricket. Test of everything, yada, yada, yada. At the moment, this is test cricket in name only. It's, only, it's a five-day game of cricket. I don't even think it should be called test cricket. So there is a way... Mike Atherton wrote about six months ago, although he wrote a very gloomy piece this last week, and I can understand why. But essentially, you've got to have a situation where the boards can make money out of test cricket. And if they make it exciting and it's the best versus the best, then you won't have situations, hopefully, like you saw at Hamilton for Ross Taylor's final test match, or you see it across the Caribbean for test matches that don't involve England or India. Or, let's be honest, in South Africa on occasion as well where these test grounds have got nobody in them. Because we could talk about protecting the primary form of the game all we like, but you've got to get people in there. And if they don't, and if it isn't the best versus the best, then I'm not sure how it's ever going to succeed. Harmy, one thing that would solve the situation, I think, in uh, the smaller countries is, as was suggested by Osman Kwaja and and, uh, Steve Ward just before the New Year test match at the SCG, they both said, Osman Kwaja actually said, if you paid people properly to play test cricket, they would be sufficiently incentivized and that would become their priority. Now, take um, who, who are the best played team? Well, Indian, Indian players, are, their match fees are always top secret. So um, England and Australia, what do they get paid? £20,000, $25,000 a test match. Is it that much? I think it is. If you made that standard and the ICC and the big three got together and formed this... Uh, fund in order to make test match fees standard, then South Africans wouldn't have a problem playing test matches for $25,000, I can tell you. I 100% agree that if you did make the fee, a standard fee, which was at at a decent rate, at a high level, and you give it a window where test match cricket is being played in that window and that block, 
then I think you would see, you might see in a lot, the product will be better, first and foremost. By paying somebody more doesn't mean you're going to get better product because by giving a guy 10 grand and give, or giving him 20 grand, if it's the same guy, you're going to get the same product. I just think from a test cricket's point of view, I think the way that these franchise leagues and the way that the shortest format has been marketed at the moment, test cricket's getting left behind. So I think if test cricket gets marketed in the same way as something like the IPL gets marketed, yes, it's a completely different product. But if you're trying to say the best versus the best, and that's how we get things started, and the fee is going to be obviously a, a standard across the board, a lot higher rate, then I think you might see a lot more players. Not move, You'll not see players moving away from uh, white ball cricket, but I think you, you might see them moving back into red ball cricket, taking it a lot more seriously. And then the product gets better and, and you know, elevates to a next level. And if you've got a window where white ball and red ball isn't crossing over, then you are probably going to get a bigger pool of players, especially in the smaller countries, which makes the standard higher. And then that takes a knock-on effect that teams that go to and play away from home, and it's more of a contest because there's not many people watching in these grounds because it's pretty much one-sided. Teams go away from home now, other than potentially playing in England when the ball does does a little bit more. Nine times out of ten, the home side wins and wins comfortably. So is that getting predictable? Is it getting where people are switching off because it's an easy win for Australia and Australia? You know, you, you go to India and you don't, India don't lose. You know, you come to England, there's a little bit more of an even contest because the ball, you know, the ball moves about a little bit more for a lot longer. So it's it's a fairer contest. And that's why the World Test Championship is should always be in England. But I think they, do, they really do now. I think this is a crossover moment for Test Match Cricket. It either goes downhill rapidly and we, we lose it for six or seven countries or... Like you said before, there, if less is more for the for the short for the short period to build it back up, and then have places in player for like a match fee, which is a lot more you know, lucrative for for the smaller for the smaller countries, as well as a window for only Test cricket, then it might be a, a starting point to go into the trajectory that that the shortest format's going at. But at this minute in time. Unfortunately, the likes of Ben Stokes, you have Virat Kohli, who's a big one on, on Test cricket. They're the only ones that really are keeping Test cricket alive. Steve Smith, Marnus Labuschagne, you know, these players are keeping it alive. Once they go, will Test cricket go? That's a big, big worry. You're listening to Following On here on Talksport 2 with me, Neil Manthorpe, alongside former England fast bowler Steve Harmison. OK, David Warner um, has been in the news a lot. It seems like six months ago he announced uh, when he would like his last test match to be, and uh, we've been talking about it sort of on a fortnightly basis ever since. Anyway, he's re- he will be retiring from ODI cricket after 161 matches, almost 7,000 runs, 22 centuries, and this was what he had to say about it. I'm feeling great. It's a great decision. I think I've made. You know, I've got to give back to the family. I'm, I'm definitely retiring from one-day cricket as well. That was something that I, I had said, you know, through the World Cup, get through that, and if... You know, winning it in India, I think that's a massive achievement. So I'll make that decision today as well to retire from those forms, which it does allow me to go and play some other leagues around the world and and sort of get the, the one-day team sort of moving forward a little bit. I know there's a Champions Trophy coming up and, you know, look, if I'm playing decent cricket still in two years' time 
and I'm, I'm around and, you know, they need someone, I'm, I'm going to be available. David Warner confirming that he's uh, retiring from ODI cricket as well as Test cricket, except, Tommy, except if he's still hitting them nice in 2025 for the Champions Trophy and, and they need an opener, then he's available. But for the meantime, he's retired. What do you make of that? <laughs> yeah, well, from somebody who came out of one-day retirement, uh, when Peterson rang me up and said, we haven't got any bowlers... I can understand at the last minute the you've Australia need a um, need an opening bat, uh, batter and he's still hitting them well in the 2020 circuit. Then yeah, why not? But I think he's been an unbelievable performer for Australia. He's had his moments. I want to say he's been great for cricket, but obviously what happened in in South Africa will obviously go against him in mind when it comes to that. What I mean by he's been great for cricket is when a character is in a group. And it's a character that polarizes um, opinions, whether people like him or dislike him. If you depend on what side of the fence you're on, from an from an Australian point of view or the opposition point of view, I think he's been great for the game. I really have because he he keeps you know he keeps opening his mouth, things come out, he keeps going at players when they're on the field. He makes his opinions very much with purpose and with. You know which side he's on when it comes to, you know, from an Australian point of view. I think David Warner is a character that we only get every now and again. We don't get many David Warners and everybody loves to hate him. Um, But for me, I think he's been good for cricket because he does polarise opinions. He gets close to the line. On more than one occasion, he's crossed the line and he's been punished for it. But I think while you've got somebody like David Warner in, you've always got a talking point. You've always got somebody to dislike. You've always got questions and answers to and, and conversations to have. And forgetting all that, he's been a, an excellent performer for Australia. Across all three formats, he's probably been Australia's greatest three-format player because the likes of Adam Gilchrist didn't play, I don't think, a great deal of T20 cricket. So I think while the T20 has gone to a, a new level and the more and more you play, I think David Warner has been as good a, good a three-format cricketer that the world's seen. And... I think cricket will miss will miss him. I think they'll miss him because everybody loves a pantomime villain. Everybody loves to hate somebody. And for the best part of 10 years, unless you're an Australian, everybody's loved to hate David Warner. Um, and I say that with all great respect for him because I think he's been a, a, an excellent servant to the game because he's he's always been creating headlines. And that, I think, is... I think that's quite a good thing. Harmy, uh, so... Um... Again, um, we've got a couple of other points to make, but I'm just curious as to what you think people might think of him in in 10, 15 years, 20 years' time when he's long retired. Will he be regarded as a, a, a lovable rogue and a, a little bit of a of a villain like John McEnroe? I remember as a teenager watching some of Jack McEnroe's early tantrums and thinking, uh, you know, I was in shock, and I thought, you know, this uh, tennis will never recover from this. But um, the the game loves him now, and there's a sort of white line fever element to it. And I just wonder whether there's a kind of calculated cynicism about David Warner, which means he won't actually be regarded as a harmless, lovable rogue in the future. There'll always be that doubt, or am I am I overdoing it? No, no. I think I think the answer to that will be in David Warner's next ten, fifteen years. He probably will stay playing T Twenty cricket for 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 quite some time, but the I think the fifteen year what will be thought of, I think will come down to what's going to happen in that time, and 
where we see David Warner. I'm not sure I see him in the coaching side of it. I think you probably will see him in the punditry side of it. And it depends on how, how that goes, that what the all-round package or the all-round emotion of, of what people will see in, in Warner from, from his, his playing days. But from his playing point of view, he was box office. And Mitchell Johnson, did he have a point? I think he did when he talked about, you know, why are we giving somebody a send-off like, like this and talked about in certain ways of, of what he did in, in South Africa. Yeah, that's a fair point. But I think now he's at the Sydney, he's at the time of, of retirement from Test Match Cricket. I think you have to celebrate what's been a, a wonderful career. Few blemishes on, but somebody who I think has been, from a talking point of view, has, has been has been good for the game. Not always been great for the game, as in promoting the game in the right way. But I think he's he's given talking points to the game, which um, which is always great to have. Okay, Hami, um, I don't think there's any shame at all in really really loving something that you don't fully understand. And and that's how I feel with uh, the uh, New Year's honours list. <clears throat> I confess I, I don't understand the difference between a CBE and an OBE. I can't even remember which one you've got, but I've always loved the honours list um, and recognition. I mean, I think I've been routinely more moved by uh, recognition for a postman who delivered mail in the rural Shetland Islands for 50 years. And uh, and was then um, honoured in the honours list. But um, it's always interesting when sportsmen and women are recognised for their achievements. And um, two cricketers in this year's list, Stuart Broad with a CBE, Marcus Truscothic with an OBE. I still don't know one whether one, <laughs> one's bigger or better than the other or whether they're just different. So, so walk us through it. Uh, which one did you get? And, and are they different um, apart from the lettering? And... Uh, and, and and how do you think uh, Stuart and, and and Trez will be feeling about that their recognition? Yeah, I think I got um, we got MBEs when we we won the Ashes, of one of which Marcus got, so he's been upgraded to OBE. I'm not sure what order they come. I think it's M then O then C, and then obviously you get Sir. Obviously Marcus has done some brilliant stuff for um, for the charities for the mental health side of of, of the charities that's going. He, he did a massive push for the sort of Alzheimer's and dementia in the summer, which I thought was magnificent. My father's suffering from from that, and I, I, it's a horrible disease, and it's one that Trez did a, a brilliant um, a brilliant week at the Oval for, and, and long may that continue, and hopefully that does so. And, and Stuart, recognition. And with you, man, as I like the the honours list, I think it, it's a recognition. I, I, again, there's a lot of people in the postman who's been doing it for so many years. And I agree with, with, with people getting recognised for, for all walks of life. Um, and it's it's only sometimes highlighted because obviously sports stars are, are more you know, higher profile. So I, I like it. And I, and I think Stuart deserves the recognition for what has been a wonderful career. And he's now going to go into the broadcasting side of it. So uh, two very good friends of mine, two brilliant competitors, to you know, unbelievable ambassadors for for cricket in this country, um, and to well deserved you know, recognition because of because of who they are, because they're all around good good people. Okay, Harvey. Final word this week goes to one of our favourite umpires, Richard Illingworth, who managed to delay the start of play after lunch on uh, I think it was day day two um, of the second test between Australia and Pakistan by getting himself stuck in a lift. 
Um, so uh, he had to he had to be uh, rescued and make his way back to the third umpire's box uh, before play could get underway. The commentators didn't know what was going on. Um, but um, so so well, well done, Richard. Um, that's a, it'll be one of those little questions of sport. But I wanted to finish by asking you what the strangest delay in play. Uh, you've been involved in the game as a player and a commentator for long enough now. There have been a few incidents in, in your career when uh, play was unexpectedly stopped. Yeah, many many times when boots have uh, you know, malfunctions been an issue with kits and stuff for that, but probably the most famous one was when the umpires in the middle, out, out, I think it was out in India, where staring at their watches, pointing at their dressing room and looking for the England cricket team and the England cricket team were a little bit flat and deflated because we, you know, we weren't doing very well. Batters were more or less on the mid, on their way into the middle, and uh, the England captain at the time, Andrew Flintoff, was giving the team a rendition of Johnny Cash's "Burning Ring of Fire." England captain didn't have a lot of clothes on at the time, and by the time he managed to get him into his whites and his boots on, it, it probably wasted about four or five minutes getting back onto the field. And England had a great session after that, so it was definitely worth the wait. We needed to hear. You know, the great man sing, sing his song because he was a he was a he's a good chanter, is is Mr. Flintoff. And that was probably the, the most famous one or the, the one that I can remember which had the most joy because you know we got ourselves back into the game after that. But getting stuck in a lift. No, I'm trying to work out why he was in the lift in the first place, but I'm assuming because at Melbourne you got to go right in the basement for, for lunch. He's knocked up the stairs and he's took the lift. So I don't understand why the fourth umpire just didn't sit in the chair for a couple of minutes and get the game going. But there's been some bizarre things that have stopped cricket. But a third umpire stuck in the lift. Wow. I think that's a head scratcher. That stand holds 50,000 people. And as you know, it's nine stories high. So you, fair enough that he took the lift. <laughs> uh, by the way, it's about time we got Fred on the show. You'll have to have a word with him. See whether he'll come and chat to us in the coming weeks. You've been listening to Following On here on TalkSport 2 with me, Neil Manthorpe, alongside former England great Steve Harmison. If you missed any of the show or you want to catch up, you can download the podcast from the Following On feed. Available, as always, from the free TalkSport app or wherever else you get your podcasts. Hope you've enjoyed this week. We'll be back at the same time next. But for now, this has been Following On. The Following On podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. And this is your gentle reminder that Barbados is the best place to be a cricket fan. With eight matches from the ICC Men's T20 Cricket World Cup Series taking place in Barbados this summer, including the final, you can experience the summer of a lifetime by booking today. Aside from immersing in world-class cricket in the sunshine, Barbados is the dream destination for all travel enthusiasts. It is where adventure meets paradise, the culinary capital of the Caribbean, and better still, the birthplace of rum. If you are keen to unite with cricket fans across the globe for what is set to be an unforgettable summer, then head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today.